benefit of those that are visiting, we've been doing a series on the book. Uh, sorry, we've been doing a series on prayer. And um, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been looking and using the scriptures to figure out how should we pray um, and, and gleaning some principles from the prayers of scripture to help us in our prayer life. And by the way, let me say this. Um, every Christian should be a praying Christian. That's one of the definitions of being a Christian, that you pray uh, and talk to the Lord. And, and it's, it's integral to being a Christian because when you understand who God is and your relationship with him, that leads you to talk to him. And as Calvin once said, uh, prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. In other words, one of the ways we demonstrate our faith is by going to the Lord in prayer. And so that's why we've been using the scriptures to learn how to pray. And so today um, we're going to look at Psalm 137, an interesting psalm. I, I mentioned somebody uh, that I was going to be doing a series on prayer. And one of the uh, pastors I'm going to use is Psalm 137. And they, they, you know, they said, oh, that's interesting, which interpretation means you might want to reconsider that. You know, and once I read it, you'll see that. You know, um, but uh, but uh, as we go through this psalm, I'm going to show you why this psalm is a blessing in many ways. So Psalm 137, hear now the word of the Lord. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy... Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have we in heaven and on earth but you? And as we have gathered here today, we have gathered to hear specifically from you in this matter of prayer. Teach us, O oh Lord. Help us, we pray. Bless us now in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Now, Psalm 137 is known as an imprecatory psalm. And imprecatory psalms <clears throat> are psalms that express anger uh, because of injustice. So that's the first thing you need to know about imprecatory psalms. The second thing you need to know is they tend to make us very uncomfortable, particularly verse 7 through 9. And if we were being even more honest, verse number 8. And the reason why, uh, sorry, verse number 9. 
And the reason why that's the case is because it seems to run counter to the message of grace in the Bible. It does, doesn't it? I mean, listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. He says, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, the ellipsis there is pray good things for the people that persecute us. There's no way around that tension. What do we do with a prayer, an imprecatory prayer, like the one in 137, verse 8 and 9? What do we do with that passage? And how do we reconcile that with Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, that we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Seems to fly in the face of what we read here. Now, in one sense, the Bible holds these two things up as a good. And so maybe our rush to kind of get from underneath that tension is a little bit unwise. Because the Bible holds both of these things up as true. The prayer that's prayed in Psalm 137, the imprecatory prayer, this, this sort of curse that he's putting on the Edomites and the Babylonians, that's, that's God-ordained. And as Western-minded Christians, as Christians, New Testament Christians, we need to be kind of okay with that because that's in the Bible and it's hard for us to get around that. But at the same time, it's juxtaposed against Jesus' statement, and we need to take that seriously as well. What do we do with that? Well, I want to give us four reasons why I think we should pray prayers like this. Not similar words, but I want to give you four reasons why I think we should pray imprecatory psalms. Why these psalms are not just in the Bible as testimonies of what people bygone has gone through, but why we today ought to be praying prayers like this, prayers of anger as a result of injustice. And here are the four reasons why. First of all, the first reason why we should pray prayers like this, why prayers like this are important and we should consider them and pray through them and think through them is this. They help us to learn how to process our anger. They help us to learn how to process our anger. Now listen to me. Um, This psalm is raw because it is processing anger. And let me say this. The imprecatory psalms are the only psalms in the Bible that are case studies on how to process anger. Everywhere else in the Bible that talks about anger, it's all prepositional. Read read Proverbs, you know, read Ephesians, read other passages in the Bible that help us, that talk about anger. All of them are propositional. They tell us, well, do this, do that, do this, do that. But the imprecatory Psalms are different. They're like case studies on how to process anger. And I think that's particularly helpful. Because we live in an age where people don't know how to process anger. Let me say it like this. There are two ways in which we typically uh, process anger. Number one, we either blow up, or number two, we clam up. Right? We either blow up and clam up. Uh, All of us fall into one of the other category. Um, The people that blow up are the people, when they get angry, man, they just start yelling and screaming. I remember one day uh, I was driving in Pensacola. That's when I lived in Pensacola. We had just gone there. I came 
uh, through an interchange, and I, and I cut off somebody in the interchange. I got confused, and I just cut off somebody. And I looked over at the person, I said, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. I was driving, I'm saying sorry. And, and man, the person uh, pulled up next to me, and I'm no lip reader. Um, but the person was not saying, I forgive you. I understand. It happens. You're, you just moved here and you were confused. No. I mean, this person was raging. They, they put their hand up and it was minus four fingers. And, and I mean, this person was just honking on their horns. I mean, everything on their face said, I want to run you off the road right now. And they even started following me a little bit. I started to get a little nervous. Real road rage, right? So that person is blowing up. Well, that's a sinful way to express anger. Now, you might be in here and you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, I'm not the blow-up kind of person. Well, that must mean that you are a clam-up kind of person. These are persons that are passive-aggressive. You know, they don't talk to you or they kind of give you the cold shoulder And even though they're not saying anything, everything about what they're doing is letting you know that they are upset at you. Those are people that clam up. And and to be honest, both of those are sinful. They're wrong ways to express anger. Now, in this passage, I want you to notice that the psalmist neither blows up or clam up. Notice, he doesn't spend the entire psalm raging. He doesn't spend the entire psalm just cursing at the Edomites and um, at the Babylonians. He just spends a certain portion. And by the same token, he doesn't clam up. So in other words, he doesn't just say nothing. He actually expresses his anger. And in doing so, we see that the passage is actually showing us how to process our anger. And let me show you the, the biggest difference between godly anger and sinful anger. Here's the biggest difference. Notice verse number one through three. Verse number one through three, the psalmist is at, the psalm is actually in three parts. Verse one through four, actually, I, I meant, is actually a lament. Do you notice that? Notice how it starts. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, what is he doing here in verse one through four? He's lamenting. Now, I've spent the last two weeks or so studying imprecatory psalms. And, and here's one of the things I notice. One of the reasons why imprecatory psalms are so difficult to actually identify as an imprecatory psalm is each and every one of them have an element of lament in it. And, and as I started noticing that, I started going throughout the Bible, and I started noticing any time God expresses anger, it's always preceded by lament. And after a while, I began to notice this truth. One of the things about godly anger, where you know you're practicing righteous indignation over something, is ask yourself the question, am I grieved? Am I grieved? Um, one of my favorite books of all time, uh, it's, it's in my top ten, easily, is a book written by a scholar, B.B. Warfield, entitled The Emotional Life of Christ. If you've never read it, please go out and buy it, right? You could, you could even get it on Kindle cheaper. But one of the things that B.B. Warfield says that, that was just so transformative for me, he said this, he said, 
When you look at Jesus and how Jesus expresses anger, he says sorrow and anger are always connected in his ministry. Sorrow and anger. And and just to give you an example, one of the clear expressions of Jesus' anger in all of Scripture is when he goes into Jerusalem and he casts over, uh, you know, like plaits the 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 rope and then he drives out the money changer and everyone says that's Jesus experiencing anger yes that's true righteous indignation but do you know what he did before that before that he was on the Mount of Olives and as he was coming down the Bible says he paused and he wept over Jerusalem he wept over Jerusalem and then after weeping over Jerusalem he goes down and he expresses godly, righteous indignation over what was happening to the people. You see, beloved, if we are to express anger rightly in a godly way, we need to lament. And one of the features of ungodly anger is it's totally void of lament. In fact, one of the features of of ungodly anger is that it's totally totally all about the self. Uh, John Calvin, uh, who's a scholar and pastor that ministered in Geneva, gives three examples of ungodly anger in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. And here's what he says. He says, first of all, godly, ungodly anger is always selfish. Never has a lament. Doesn't care about anybody else. It only cares about you. And this is the three things he says. He says, anger that arises because of minor private injuries or offenses. And I'm paraphrasing here. But he says one of the ways we can tell ungodly anger from godly anger is it's always always because we've been hurt in some way. And it's usually minor. Nothing serious. We've been hurt in some way. The second thing he said um, that I I thought was profound, he says "We, we often get angry quickly and we make mountains out of molehills. In other words, he's saying that we, we make things bigger than they actually are. Whenever you see somebody lose it quickly, and then they, they take a minor thing, and they make it into a big thing, he says, that's how you know that's ungodly anger. And the third thing that he says is this. When we unleash our anger on others instead of the problem. Now, if you look at what Calvin says, you'll notice that the psalmist here does none of that. In fact, what is he doing? He's expressing anger, not at an individual, and this is key. This is key. He never names a specific individual. What does he do? He names a country, the Edomites, the Babylonians. He doesn't get personal with his anger. Instead, what he does is he says, you have hurt my people. And there's some of us in here today We struggle with anger and how to process it. We either blow up or we clam up. But what we should do, if it's true godly anger, is lament. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, why is that? Why is that so important? Because it helps us understand the gospel. It helps us understand the gospel. Think about this for a moment. When you understand sin and what sin does in the world... The only right and proper response to all of that is lament. Remember, when right before God destroys the world, what does the Bible say? It grieved him that he created man. Grieved him. It hurt him. 
He lamented. And so often, our expressions of anger are not seasoned with lament. It's seasoned with our own personal grievances toward others. But let me encourage you. We live in a world, and one of the reasons why I chose this psalm more than anything else is this. We live in a world where injustice abounds. We live in a world where the innocent is being taken advantage of through abortion or through neglect. We live in a world where injustice reigns. And if we as God's people are going to do anything about that, we need to learn how to express godly, reverent anger over that and beseeching the Lord and asking the Lord to help us. So that's one of the reasons why we should uh, be uh, praying prayers like this because they help us to process anger. The second thing is this. As visceral as these emotions are, they give voice to our pain. They give voice to our pain. Now, let me pause and say this. There, there's some of you inside here today, you've, you've been sinned against mightily. In a, in a room this size, I, I, I know that there are some of you that you were abused as children, sexually, physically. There are some of you inside here today that have experienced great injustice at the hands of others. And you struggle to voice that pain. And one of the gifts of this psalm is that through this raw emotion, we see someone going before God and actually expressing genuine pain. Now, I want you to notice something, and this really shows the godliness of the psalmist. Notice in verse 1 through 3, not only do their captors come in and destroy their country and their land and take them off to Babylon, But it mentions here that they were being taunted. Notice, for there our captors require of a song, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Imagine this. Imagine somebody hurt you deeply and profoundly. And then add to that, they go online or elsewhere, and they begin taunting you as a result of it. Can you imagine that? Man, that's awful. That is awful. Think of how devastated you would be. Think of how crushed you would be. Think of how how pained you would be. That's what the psalmist is experiencing here. And what does he do with all of that pain? Well, he expresses it to God. Because that's where we take our pain. We take it to God, which leads me to my third point quickly. And it's this. This psalm reminds us that we live in a world filled with injustices, and the only place we can rightly take this pain and suffering is to God. It's the only place we can take it. Notice, he doesn't doesn't say, God, strengthen me that I might might kill the Edomites and um, that I might kill the Babylonians. He He doesn't say, God, use me, like, Punish them and then use me as the instrument for that punishment. doesn't do that. Notice he says in verse number 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. And then he goes in verse number 8 and says, Repay you. And we're going to head back to this in a moment. But I wanted to pause and say this. 
He takes his anger to God because only God can actually do something with that anger and that pain. Only God can. There's a commentator who uh, I was reading and I was uh, looking through this, and he says something pretty profound. He said that one of the reasons why we give um, our pain to God is because only God has the power, knowledge, and right to judge. And I want to I wanna tease that out for a moment. Only God has the power, knowledge, and right to judge. What does he mean by that? The reason why we take our pain to God is because of the character of God. That's the point that he's trying to make. Only God has the kind of character to deal with injustice in the way that injustice uh, actually needs to be dealt with. Let, let me say it a little bit differently. Notice, first of all, the commentator says that we take our pain and our suffering to the Lord in anger and frustration because, first of all, God has the power to judge, meaning God is omnipotent. This psalmist, by the way, doesn't possess the ability to fight his enemies for himself. He doesn't have that. He's powerless. And so what does he do? He goes to the God who is omnipotent, and he's acknowledging before God, God, I'm powerless. I need your help. And so what is, the, what does he, what is he acknowledging? Well, he's acknowledging that God is omnipotent, meaning that only God has the power, only God has the power to truly punish and deal with evil. And so he appeals to the omnipotence of God. Notice, also, only God has the kind of knowledge necessary to punish. In other words, he is appealing to the omniscience of God. Only God is possession of all the facts. I, I, I mentioned this before as an illustration, but it's a good one, so I'll mention it again. There are times when I'm sitting down, right, uh, in the seat of judgment in my home, and my children come running to me. And they say, Dad, so-and-so did this to me. And then, of course, someone else has the opposite opinion. No, they did this to me. And I'm sitting there listening to these two sophists, right, arguing. And they want me to render a judgment. How, how am I supposed to know that? Who, how am I supposed to know who's lying? Who, how am I supposed to know if they're looking and interpreting the situation correctly? You know, so often in our lives, this might happen to you. You, you're watching the news, you hear one side of the story, and you fly into rage. You haven't heard the other side. And then you hear the other side, and you're like, well, you know, that's, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. But there are so many times you and I come into a situation where we not lack the full knowledge of a situation, but we want to render a judgment. And what the psalmist is doing here, he's saying, no, only God is omniscient. Only God is in possession of all the facts, and therefore, only God can judge rightly. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. That's why we take our pain and our anger and our, our frustration with this world, and we give it to God, because ultimately, only God is omniscient, and we aren't. And when we take matters into our own hands, we will surely err. Vengeance is mine, I shall repay, saith the Lord. So only God has the power and the knowledge, but lastly, only God has the right to judge. And this is appeal to God's sovereignty. God alone has the right to judge. And he's going before the Lord and he's saying, God, judge them for what they have done. That's biblical. That's biblical because he's holy and just. 
Now, the last thing I want to point out to us that I think is significant in terms of why we should um, use these psalms and pray through these psalms, and it's this. It's a way to help others process their pain. It's a way to help others process your pain. Now, as a pastor, one of the things I do often is I try to help others and to some degree myself move past my anger on certain things. Have you ever met people? Something happened, happened to them a long time ago, and as they're telling you the story, you could see in real time they're getting angry and frustrated all again. And then you look at them and you say, well, wait a minute, this person hasn't gotten past what has happened to them. They haven't properly dealt with that. And so how do we take our anger and our frustration to God and move past that? See, that's important because we can't live in anger. It's not good for us. It's not good for us to carry anger and grievances. In fact, if you read scripture and if you look at anger, there are two things you see about anger. It should be, we should be slow to anger and anger should be done in short bursts. First of all, the Bible says God is slow to anger, meaning he doesn't get angry quickly. And so if we find ourselves getting angry um, very fast, we know, hey, we're not being angry. We're not, we're not expressing godly anger because the Bible tells us we should be slow to anger. But the second thing is anger should be short-lived. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, the Bible says, because anger should be short-lived. So if, if you're in here today and you've been nursing anger and frustration over a long period of time. The Bible says that's not healthy. And I'll go so far as to say this. It's actually sin. Because holding on to your anger and frustration, that's not going to help you. It doesn't help the situation. And it actually doesn't help you move on properly. And I meet so many people that, man, they just hold on to anger like it's their only weapon against a sinful world and against others but it does you no good. And so how does the psalmist move past his anger? Well, he moves past his anger by exercising hope in the Lord. Now let me show you this based on two words. First of all, verse number seven, the word remember, and then in verse number eight, repay. So he says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites what they did, the fact that they jeered Israel as it was being destroyed. And then he says, of course, repay the Babylonians for what they have done. Now, those two words, remember and repay, are, are very, very interesting words, and we don't have the time to delve into them, but I will just say this. One of the things that the psalmist is saying here is this, Lord, make this right now. Make this right now. The injustice is so great the pain, my personal pain is so great. You need to make this right now because if I carry this for too much longer, it will destroy me and by extension, it will destroy everyone around me. That's what he's saying here. He's pleading with God. Far from expressing the desire to just crush two nations, he's saying, God, please help me. Help me for your name's sake. Help deal with this anger right now. And let me say this too. This isn't just him conjuring up destruction against his enemies. In verse, if you read verse 7, 8, and 9, you'll notice in the prophets, these are things that God says that he will do to the Edomites and to the Babylonians. 
And so what he's actually doing here is he's praying scripture. Notice Jeremiah 51, 56 says within the same context, for the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. And the word surely repay there in Hebrew is actually the same word said twice. He will repay, repay. Meaning this, if you pray to God, if you pray your anger to God, if you pray your frustration to God, and you beg him and you ask him, God, deliver me from this now. The Bible says God will answer your prayer. And by the way, he did. He did. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment of this verse, and I'll end with this. The near fulfillment is this. After this prayer was prayed, when, when this psalm was written, 20 years later, the Lord actually used the Assyrians to destroy the Babylonians. That's the near fulfillment. The Lord actually was faithful to his promise. But there's a far fulfillment. And the far fulfillment, of course, as you know, was found with Christ's work on the cross. You say, Pastor Dennis, what are you talking about? Let me show you this, this real quick. Verse 7, 8, and 9, even though it's an imprecatory prayer, what it actually is is a curse. It's expressing a curse. It's saying, Lord, uh, and biblical curse isn't like, you know, our, our word for curses today. Let me just say that. You know, some of you are like, oh, really? The Bible tells me I could curse out people that I'm angry with. No, no, no. That's not what it's talking about. A biblical curse is when you pray something or pray for the destruction of an enemy. And one of the things that in the Bible that's seen here is as he is giving this imprecatory psalm, in the form of a curse upon the Edomites and Babylonian, he says, God curse them for what they have done to me. But let me tell you that there's no way the Edomites and the Babylonians could bear that curse. Someone had to bear that curse for them. And that someone, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So even though there was a near fulfillment of this verse, that the Edomites and the Babylonians were destroyed, ultimately, because of God's revelation, we know that there is a far fulfillment, and that occurred some 500 years later on the cross. You see, in other words, Christ bore the punishment of the Edomites and the Babylonians. If I could say it differently, he became the Edomites and the Babylonians. That the curse rendered here was actually fulfilled in Christ because none of us could bear the curse of our sin. You know, we often think about us being angry at others, but we don't realize that there are times when others are angry at us. And we need God's mercy. And that mercy, of course, comes as a result of forgiveness and of grace. That's why in verse number um, 9, it says, uh, verse number 8 and 9, he uses the word blessed. Blessed shall be he who repays you. Blessed is he who takes your little one and dashes them against the rock. Why are they blessed? They're blessed because they're doing what's morally right. And the morally right thing that happened was Christ's death on the cross for our sins. The morally right thing was that God poured out his wrath, ultimately, his imprecation upon Christ. That's the morally right thing to do. And so what does that mean for us today? That means, first of all, that we can carry our anger 
and our frustrations to God and we can pray them and we know that we are heard and he will act. But ultimately what it means is that God will not destroy you as a result of your sin and the fact that we make others angry, ultimately God by our sin. Beloved, hear the gospel here before I leave because this is so important. It's so easy to look at verse number seven, eight, and nine and think, man, how can, he, how can he call upon the destruction of others? That's not what he's doing at all. He's appealing to the justice of God, and we need to do the same in our day. We need to pray those prayers because real injustice is happening. And I just want to encourage you, and this is the big takeaway, take your anger to God and leave it there. Some of you need to hear that today. Stop walking around angry and frustrated at others and the world. Take your anger to God and leave it there. Ask him, if you are prone to sinful anger, ask him to take that away from you so that you can walk in the grace and in the love and the beauty that is found in the gospel. Ask him to give you a true heart of lament over sin. Beloved, when we look at this world, we shouldn't be just angry at the unbeliever. We should lament that they are in their sins and cry out to God because they need grace. They need the gospel. They need it. And we who understand the grace and forgiveness of our Lord should properly lament over them. And we should express to God that he put an end to their wickedness so that they might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that these imprecatory psalms are a gift to the church because they show us what to do with anger. Lord, we live in a world filled with anger and abuse and injustice. And I thank you that you've left behind these psalms that help us process them in a way that brings you glory and appeals to your justice and your goodness. Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.